For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We'll come back to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Next week, I think, uh, mostly we'll focus on the end of chapter 3, although it's useful context for us. Um, Look down as we begin to chapter 3, And verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Such a striking verse, Um, a how-to statement on the reassurance of the heart. How do you reassure your heart? Now, you might think that you don't need to. The banner over big chunks of our culture is follow your heart. As the great philosopher and thinker Paula Abdul once said, break the rules, stand apart, ignore your head, follow your heart. More famously, Steve Jobs in his commencement address to Stanford, don't be trapped by dogma. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition. 
they somehow already know what you want to become. Why would you need to reassure your heart? You need your heart to talk to you and then follow it. But of course, this is nonsense, isn't it? Hearts waver. People lose heart. Sometimes, most of the time, the path to truth is not to look inside, it's to look outside. Inside, the heart is just a mess. So how do you reassure a wavering heart? The truth is that it is possible to doubt the truth, even when it's the truth. To second-guess what should be obvious, what, what ought to be a given Especially, we need to say, when you meet utterly self-confident, vitriolic opposition. At the moment, uh, some of the associates, our ministry trainees here, well, they've just finished reading a bit of The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And I have to confess that when I first read that book, most of 20 years ago now, I suppose, um, I did find it a bit dispiriting. But not so much the intellectual rigour which seldom ascended very far above an A-level kind of RE class. No, not the intellectual rigour, just the sheer self-righteous vitriol. He knows he is right. He knows we are wrong. And he's determined to stamp us out. And sometimes that sort of self-confident opposition does make a heart wobble. The church that John was writing to, as we've seen over the last few weeks, was a church full of wobbling hearts. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that they were left behind, that they were reviled as evildoers. To that we could perhaps add that they were hated, maybe even persecuted. The thing that makes all of that even harder, even more reason for the heart to wobble, is that they don't necessarily look like They are the people who are standing still, who are staying where they should be. I was speaking to one of our morning congregation, Michael Yu, a couple of weeks ago about this. And he was suggesting that they might not have looked very conservative. You might think that this week that's quite a good thing. Um, They might not have looked very conservative. In fact, they may have looked like dangerous, irresponsible innovators. So history, tradition, the buildings, the community standing political influence, the ear of the Roman authorities, all of those things belonged to, well, the people we've been calling the departed, the other sides, the other group of people who claim to be God's children. The Christians looked like the radicals. And so double those two things up, the weight of history and tradition with the self-righteous fury of a zealot, whose heart wouldn't waver when you're being faced down by that? Am I sure that I've really got this right? Is my faith in Jesus really a solid rock? How do you reassure a wobbling heart? Well, the answer in 1 John is the word of God. Of course, we are turning to the word of God as we turn to 1 John. So you might think that's a very circular statement. But crucially, that is what John himself is doing in these chapters of 1 John. Perhaps you've noticed it over the last few weeks as John has taken us back to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis again and again. It's one of the 
reasons. He keeps using that word, the beginning, eight times um, in the letter, the beginning. And so we've had the contrast of light and darkness. We've had the commandment. We've had the fall, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, the pride of possessions. We've had the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent last week. John has been working sequentially through Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And so it's no surprise that this morning we get to Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. John thinks if you want to reassure a wavering heart, then you need to turn to the word of God. The whole way through, he's driven by this conviction. If you want to understand the present moment, do you want to understand it? If you want to know who you are, if you want to know who your opponents are, if you want to know what to say to a wobbly heart, the answers are in Genesis. And so for the third week in a row, uh, we're about to see John do the same thing. He's going to take his categories from Genesis chapter 4. He's going to ask, what does the family of God look like? And what does the world look like? And then he's going to apply them to what's in front of him. Who are Christians? Who are those who are teaching against them? And then he's going to reassure our hearts. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Enough introduction. Let's dive in. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, but also the beginning of the Bible, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Where does he start? Well, he begins with the departed, with those who have left. And he says the departed are murderers like Cain. That's our first point this morning. The departed are murderers like Cain. Uh, We've noticed over the last few weeks, haven't we, that John is the master of the eschatological insult. Um, Antichrists, children of the devil, now murderers. Next week, liars. Of course, what John is doing is evoking the most famous murder of all, the first murder the murder at the beginning of the Bible. And significantly, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain is not just a murderer. No, Cain's murderous enmity with Abel begets a whole line of murderers, a line that culminates in Lamech, the first serial killer. Murderous rage, you might say, is in the DNA of the family of Cain. And John's point is that the departed are murderers like Cain. Of course, he's not saying that they're all literal murderers. I look down to verse 13. Brothers, do not be surprised that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Not everyone who murders his brother hates him, but everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And I think literal murder probably was in the picture here. Ever since Stephen, Christians had literally been murdered for their faith. 
By the time that John wrote this letter, a full-blooded apostle side may well have been underway. And of course, if that was true then, it's more true than ever now. More Christians were martyred in the last century than in the previous 19. I spoke at a conference at one point where some of the delegates heard midway through the conference that a number of their fellow pastors had been slaughtered back home. Of course, there is plenty of literal violence against God's people. But John's point is broader. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The heart that produces murder, hatred, that is the mark of the children of Cain. And John wants these Christians to see it. These people who have left you, who revile you and speak against you, who've turned vicious against you and against Jesus... I know that sort of self-confident, self-righteous, fierce opposition might make you waver. But apply the word of God. It shouldn't. It's just what Cain's family does. Of course, it's not necessarily how they self-report. Now that, I think, is the force of verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth. Remember, in 1 John chapter 3, there are two families, two families claiming to be the children of God. But the thing is that both of these families talk about love. Actually, the other family talk about it a lot. The great commandment is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbors, yourself. You know, those aren't distinctively Christian things. They're from the law. Those who have departed, who've gone back to a form of Judaism without Jesus Christ, certainly talked about love. I bet they talked about love all the time, just as our culture does now. But beneath that veneer of love, the word and the talk of love, there is no reality Their love is not about how you treat those who actually need your help. It's not about being willing to keep your brother. It is love talk. And so here is a reason to reassure your wavering heart. Those who have departed, who hate you, are just showing that they're in the family of Cain. Now, I think this is worth us taking on board as Christians this morning. I think it's worth particularly taking on board verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do you know what? I think we often are surprised when the world hates us. I think that's what lies behind the thought that I introduced last week. Remember, if you were here, I talked about that chap, Francis Spufford, who suggests that it's a uniquely new thing that Christians might be reviled as evildoers um, and not just as wrong, that it's a wholly new thing that we need to learn to be the bad guys. The truth is that that is not new. We forget that it's the way that it has always been. We're surprised when the world hates Christians. And then you see a Christian brother or sister really provoke the hatred of the world, and you begin to think that they must have done something to deserve it. I mean, perhaps they were especially pugnacious, or perhaps they were particularly combative, 
or just very foolish. And as long as I am reasonable enough, and as long as I'm loving enough, and as long as I'm good enough, I'll be okay, right? Right? Well, wrong. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It was precisely the righteousness, the the goodness of Abel that got him killed. If we feel that the world suddenly hates us, that's not a new thing. It is as old as the hills. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, actually, we should probably be encouraged. The things that might make these Christians waver, the fury and the visceral hatred, the flashing eyes, the totally self-confident opposition on the part of the world to Jesus and his people, well, it might make you waver, especially when it's backed up by force. But John says, look, open your Bible to page number three. This is what the offspring of the serpent do. If anything, it's a backhanded confirmation that you are the children of the promise. How do you reassure a a wavering heart? Well, firstly, you turn to Genesis chapter four and you look at what the offspring of Cain are like here and then you apply it to the people who are making these Christians' hearts wobble and you say, look, it's a match. You don't need to be surprised by this. Secondly, though, you look at Christians and that's our second point. We, as in not just me and my friends, and not just us here at St. Helens, but we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all Christians, in all times and places, we look like Abel. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Of course, John makes the point that there is an alternative to hatred all the way through the passage. And so in verse 11, we should love one another. Verse 14, we love the brothers. Verse 18, we must love in deed and in truth. We should love and not hate. But John's point is not just that the Christian family is better at loving than the other family, His point is that we have an altogether different take on what love is. Just look at verse 16 again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 17, we'll work backwards. Verse 17 is anti-Cain. Cain notoriously asked that question. Do you remember? Am I my brother's keeper? And John says, yes. Yes, you are. Anyone who has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? True love is not like their Cain-like washing of the hands. But more strikingly, verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, there's the echo of Abel 
We are the family of the life laid down. The Lord Jesus, who laid his life down for us. We, who recognize that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A family marked not by murder, but by sacrifice. A bit like Abel, who himself offered an animal sacrifice. A bit like Abel, who wound up getting killed. With a care for Abel, keeping our brothers. We are like Abel. It's not perfect. Mostly, truth be told, it's our big brother, the Lord Jesus, who gets this right. But if we are in Jesus' family and we're reading Genesis 4, we're in the family that looks like Abel. Now, there is an imperative here. And you might have been thinking as I've been speaking this morning that I should have made more of it, more of it as we've gone through. Um, one of the commentaries I read makes the point that in a context where some Christians are being persecuted, it might be tempting for others to look the other way, to wash their hands. And of course, if they were tempted to do that, verse 18 would be a very sharp rebuke. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christians must not do that. Christians must actively, genuinely love one another. And we're going to have lots and lots more to say about that next week. And so do come back next week and we'll think really hard about this commandment, let us love one another. But actually in 1 John, before it is an imperative, it is an encouragement. And that is why the language of knowledge and confidence is all over the passage. Did you see it? Chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life. Verse 15, you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Verse 16, by this we know love. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Uh, verse 24, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. John's big aim is that we know. It's about reassuring our hearts. So here we have two families, two families that talk about love all the time. Love your neighbor, love the Lord your God. Both families talk about love. And John wants to say, yes. But ours is the only family that really understands it because we have seen the life laid down. It's a very striking point, actually, isn't it? It's still true. We live in a moment in a culture that cannot stop talking about love. One of my not especially well-kept secrets is that I have a bit of a soft spot for romantic comedies. If there's a film from the late 90s or the early noughties starring Gwyneth Paltrow or Hugh Grant or Julia Roberts or Meg Ryan. Um, I'm there. Um, if you could find a film with all of them in, I'd definitely be there. Um, I don't know uh, how many of you will remember uh, that sort of age of film. It's kind of been increasingly embarrassing, isn't it? It's 20 odd years now since uh, 2003 and Richard Curtis's Love Actually. Um, if you haven't seen it, you might not want to, but it will be on on the run into Christmas. Um, anyway, Love Actually. Um, I remember one of my friends made the point that for all that Richard Curtis's point in that film, he's desperate to make the point that love actually is all around. Love is everywhere. Wherever you look, 
there's love. There's all these stories he wants to tell about love to show you that love is everywhere. There's nothing in the film that looks very much like real love at all. In fact, the one relationship where someone does something close to laying down their rights, their life, for the sake of their brother, is portrayed not as love, but as a tragic barrier to the pursuits of love. It's incredible. Here's a film that wants to persuade us that our culture loves love and it's everywhere you look. And it's a film that is mostly notable for the absence of anything that looks like authentic love. It's where our culture's at, isn't it? On the one hand, we have declared a monopoly on love. The West, we understand love. The rest of the world are still gripped by hate. Love wins. Love is love. But to say that you're pro-love is really to say that you are pro-unfettered self-expression, that you support the right for everyone to live their best life. It's really to say that you support the desire of the eyes and the desire of the flesh and the pride of life. Love wins is the motto of a culture that will hate you if you get in the way of what they want. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Of course there's an imperative here, and we'll come back to that next week. But before there's an imperative, there is a reassurance We are the family that knows love. We're the family of the life laid down. Ours is the family that looks like Abel. And so, John says, we can be reassured, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. By this we know that we are of the truth. It's so helpful, isn't it, that John does it this way around. The temptation is to look on the inside, to hunt for some sort of subjective sense. My heart is wobbling, and so I look within for some sort of inner evidence, some sort of emotional heat, um, some conviction that shows that I really am in the right place. But what do you do if it's your heart, your internal sense of direction and confidence that is all a flutter? What if you are intimidated or bullied or discouraged or depressed? You don't need to follow your heart. You need to take your heart to one side and give it a good talking to you and remind it which way is up. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Don't let your heart talk to you. Let God, God who is greater than our hearts, talk to your heart. And what the word of God does, actually what John does as he applies the word of God, the word of God as it describes Christians, the word of God as it describes their enemies, is to say, look, tell this to your heart. Reassure your heart. 
We are the family of God's. And so three steps. Step one, read Genesis chapter four. Which is the right family, Cain's or Abel's? Step two, apply Genesis chapter four. Which family is more like Cain's? Which family is more like Abel's? Who is out for blood? Who is laying their life down? Step three, tell it to your heart. Stop wondering. Stop second guessing. Stop letting their hatred surprise you. They're wrong. This is the right family. The family of the life laid down. John says we can reassure our hearts. This explains why it is so devastating to Christian assurance when Christians stop reading their Bibles. It also explains why it is so devastating to Christian assurance when Christians tear strips off each other. And have you noticed that? Of course it is disappointing when Christian leaders publicly fail. And I can see why that might knock some people's confidence. But you know what really shakes mine? It's when I see a whole groups of Christians biting and devouring and attacking each other with the name but none of the reality of brotherly love. An atmosphere of distrust, suspicion, jealousy, envy, rage, slander, and hatred. The times that I have seen those things in our constituency, it's made me wonder. Not just am I in the right church, not not even am I in the right tribe, Not am I in the right constituency, not even am I in the right wing of the Church of England, if that's a thing, but am I in the right family at all? Is there anything distinctive about the Christian church at all? Is there a family of God in the world? And do you know what? To an extent, that extent is that that response is right. How can we reassure our heart before God if we are the ones who act like Cain? When Christians tear strips off each other, it is devastating to Christian assurance. To an extent, when that's made me wobble, my response has been right. But only to an extent, because actually John's aim is reassurance. Assurance for the church that he wrote to, and assurance for every authentically Christian church. Do you know what? Every Christian, anywhere in the world has the Lord Jesus as their big brother, and he laid down his life. And every Christian anywhere in the world belongs to a church that has been radically formed by the family values, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know love. We know that we ought to love. And actually, wherever authentic Christians are, we do. And I've certainly seen that here. And so we reassure our hearts that we're God's children. Uh, Last week, I published the results of the DNA test um, that showed that we can be confident with 100% certainty that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ um, are the children with 100% proof of paternity of the God of Israel. Well, it's not just a naked result. There is an identifiable gene sequence, opposition to sin, even to the point of confessing your sin, loyalty to Jesus, keeping the commandment to believe in him, 
a willingness to be your brother's keeper and knowledge of love that is shown by the life laid down. Those are the things that show that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are the real children of the God of Israel. And because we are God's children, we can do what God's children do. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. If you know Genesis chapter 4, you'll know that all John is doing is following his text to the end. Um, After Genesis deals with the family of Cain, it moves back to the family of God and to the birth of Seth and to the people who at that point begin to call on the name of the Lord. That is our family privilege. Of course, it's tempting to make prayer into a duty and we could really feel bad about this or we could make prayer into some sort of mechanism for naming and claiming things and say lots of silly prosperity things about this. But that's not why John talks about prayer here. Now he wants us to understand that prayer is our family privilege. Our one brother was driven away from the face of the Lord and the other began to call on his name. One brother was cursed, and the other prayed. Did you know that there are nearly 8 billion people in the world right now? And I reckon about 7.5 billion of them pray. And do you know whose prayers are heard out of all of those 7.5 billion? Ours. Yours. Mine. If you belong to the family of the Lord Jesus... He hears your prayers. What an extraordinary privilege. Well, here is John addressing the wavering heart. He says, look at the word of God. Look at them, the people who hate you. Look properly at yourselves. Reassure your heart. And then pray. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this extraordinary truth we can have, that we can be confident before you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your great love, your love from a far country that you have set upon us, that we, even we, should be called the children of God. And we want to pray that you would help us not to be intimidated or bullied or knocked off course. We pray that we would be really confident that this family, the family of the living Lord Jesus, is the family of life. And we thank you so much that as we share that confidence, where your children, whose prayers you hear, what a joy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.